0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. welcome to the Think About It podcast. I'm your host, uh, Uli Baer. I'm really excited today to have a guest from Pennsylvania State University, Bradford Vivian. First of all, Brad, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Yes, and uh, we had to talk about your new book, um, Campus Misinformation, The Real Threat to Free Speech and American Higher Education, which was published by Oxford University Press. And before we get into it, I'll just want to remind our listeners. Obviously, you found the podcast somewhere wherever podcasts are posted. It's also available on the New Books Network. And I have not checked today, but I think this may be around the 90th, 90 episode on free speech. And I've had a lot of guests on here from a range of perspectives. And I just want to introduce you, Brad, really briefly here. You're a professor in the Department of Communication, Arts, and Sciences at Pennsylvania State University, and you're a professor of rhetoric, which you also call in your descriptions the art of persuasion. And some of the other books I've looked at, you've looked at not just the content of certain debates, but let's say the form big debates take in public discourse and very specific political or other instances. Those books include Commonplace Witnessing, Rhetorical Invention, Historical Remembrance, and Public Culture, and Public Forgetting, The Rhetoric and Politics of Beginning Again, and then a further book, Being Made Strange, Rhetoric Beyond Representation. And in all those books, you don't look at the specifics of an argument, but rather how an argument is given shape in public discourse by the various actors, people who talk about it, not to sort of say they're right, here they're wrong, here they could be corrected, but rather saying they are certain, and I want you to come in here to sort of their paradigms or shapes of debates. And those are the ones you look at in your new book called um, Campus Misinformation.
0: That's absolutely correct. And actually, your description helps me think about the direction I took with this book based on that prior research, because most of my prior research um, has been fairly conventionally academic. And I've looked, even though I thought it had a lot of very important public connections, I've looked at, as you describe, a lot of theories of language and communication and persuasion and moved into, in the mid-phase of my career so far at least, Uh, Looking at controversies over collective memory and how people remember the past with a focus on the language or the vocabularies or narrative structures that they use to do so. And so this latest book, Campus Misinformation, might seem like a bit of a right angle, I know, but for me, the through line was looking at how people make arguments and use language in many different capacities, not just for political arguments, but even for scientific ones. Uh, for the collective. And in that discipline, uh, the discipline that I'm part of, we tend not to advise people on what to say, but how to have the most constructive evidence based arguments or conversations and efforts at persuasion. And then, similarly, with my work in collective memory, and this is a vast interdisciplinary field, of course, and I think it's fairly stock in trade where a lot of people look at examples of collective memory the different memories evolve or mutate over time that certain narratives get told and then eventually different social and political groups will tell the story a little bit differently. And so you have a kind of cultural telephone game, if you will. Uh, And both of those things were then relevant in terms of campus misinformation, the degree to which in a lot of these narratives about what's allegedly happening on college campuses, there are kernels of original fact-based information misinformation occurs when things chain out and more and more elaborate fantastical stories get told and there can be negative consequences to those things on having the most constructive public argument about higher education that we can in my view
1: so let's just stay with this last point so the, the book campus misinformation is about a kind of groupings of misinformation stories about University stories about colleges that everybody's familiar with, and you identify some of them, and you say there's a kernel of truth, or an incident, or something happened, or a half a line in some statement or something, and that is then taken to illustrate something much larger, and I'll just give our listeners sort of the idea of the book, uh, those include diversity in viewpoint controversies, these ideas of trigger warnings and safe spaces where students are presumably told in advance that certain materials will be really difficult to handle and they can opt out of it or the mm-hmm. university as a safe space to protect you from potentially injurious, harmful, or offensive speech. Then declarations of emergency where one incident is blown up and saying this is a threat to all of society. This happened mm-hmm. on a campus. If we let this go, this will just take down all of democracy. Pseudoscience um and mobs and shutdown and i'll stop here because the last two chapters are kind of you identify them first amendment issues and orthodoxy as sort of the ways in which all of these are framed but what you said all of these chapters usually refer to something that really happened something that really exists and i use the word really here this is let's just call it for a moment they are facts and then they become something in the hands of people and they tell a longer story. And the story, I think, also has shifted a bit, but the story you identify is probably the last 10, 15 years or so, where universities have become the kind of stage on which to see the really big threats to democracy um, happening first. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's, I appreciate that description. And so, yes, a couple of things that. Uh, are topmost in my mind in response. One is the the very different linguistic or argumentative fronts that a lot of what I describe as campus, campus misinformation takes place on. So it's sort of many claims at once. It's a profusion of apparent information or revelations about dark and troubling things that are allegedly happening on college campuses. So the claims get made. There's a widespread intolerance among undergraduate students now for different ideas or free speech, or there's um, sort of scientific, I, I'd say they're scientifically questionable or pseudoscientific, pseudoscientific claims about the alleged mental health ills of a whole generation of college or high school students now. Uh, or the idea that there's essentially a regime of political indoctrination that's taking place on most college campuses in alignment with diversity, equity and inclusion programs. Uh, and then this raises serious first amendment issues. So already that's just a, a brief idea, but the upshot is that these narratives are throwing several different kinds of strong claims at once uh, into public discourse to sort of just demonstrate the general alleged point that college campuses are now wild sometimes potentially violent places that simply won't tolerate sometimes by force uh, particular types of outside speakers or whatnot so all of these and in terms of the misinformation part the thing that i'm concerned about is having the most sort of accurate inclusive public discourse we can about higher education Institutions of higher education, colleges, and universities, there are tremendous challenges facing them right now. But um, a lot of what I describe as this misinformation starts with premises that are arguably upside down. Um, there's a much more complex story to be told about how, how actually undergraduate students today, they pull very well on defenses of sp- free speech and tolerance for different viewpoints if you look across the information. Or, for example, these claims about how college and university campuses are betraying the First Amendment. If you look at First Amendment law and the full complexities of it, just with a basic functional understanding, um, that, doesn't, that kind of claim doesn't hold up. And so I advocate for a sort of broader uh, kind of conversation that includes the full complexity of evidence and information and informed perspectives that we can have on the state of higher education today, uh, because it is so crucially important to democratic society.
1: Let me get to why did you think this was important to kind of step out and you make a point in the book to say you you don't have a partisan agenda. You're not defending this or that perspective. You're saying there's a problem with this kind of misinformation campaign. When did you first start thinking, okay, You're part of a big university, one of the great, large state university systems in the country. When did you start thinking, and I had the same impulse at some point when I wrote this book, uh, What Snowflakes Get Right, and I thought there is a Mm -hmm. distortion here. Uh, My only interest was really, my interest was really motivated by this is not who my students are. And people are talking about them who, with all due respect, or maybe not that much respect for their journalistic knowledge they don't know what students are and they're mischaracterizing and really caricaturing them in a very pernicious way saying oversensitive coddled uh not tolerant of uh, aggressive speech and essentially opposing all the ideas of our country i thought this was just a distortion where did you start thinking this is not a great thing happening right now or you could also just say well that's journalism there's a bit of resentment against the academy we can move on
0: Absolutely. Well, it was a confluence of a few things, I think, looking back. As I make the case in the book, a lot of this misinformation and these anti-university attacks, this strong anti-higher education rhetoric, was deliberately pushed in 2017-2018 uh, as part of a, a broader socio-political agenda, in my view. And eventually in 2020, the last couple of election cycles, this highly negative anti-university rhetoric has gotten taken up into hyper-partisan um, political discourse. So at that time, it's going late 2010s, I was serving at Penn State in a couple of administrative positions at once that really put the focus on what you described, that there, there might be broadly legitimate concerns here, but this, uh, public outrage about what's allegedly happening on college campuses really does not reflect a lot of what goes on. And the two roles I was in was first in my home department, Communication Arts and Sciences, I was our Director of Undergraduate Studies. And so I was working pretty intensively to revise our curriculum in conjunction with a lot of student input and so forth and for their needs. and thinking about undergraduate education in general, And then at the same time, I was director of the Center for Democratic Deliberation here at Penn State. So I was thinking about lots of messages concerning worries over the erosion of democracy or democratic backsliding in the US and abroad. And and so on the one hand, I was in an administrative role where these descriptions of the alleged mentality of undergraduate students to diverse views and so forth or how they lack initiative and personal responsibility, um, all of these sorts of things. They just did not track with my day-to-day experience of undergraduates or the kinds of administrations, uh, administrative offices that try and support them as part of a larger, very valuable mission. And then on the other administrative capacity, more and more I was attuned to a key symptom of democratic backsliding in places like Eastern Europe, Russia, of course, Brazil, and Turkey, where oftentimes when you have rising pro-authoritarian sentiment, you have populist attacks on universities and a lot of outrage being fomented about them, anti-university propaganda. And so between the two, just the sort of problems with allegedly who undergraduate students are now and allegedly how universities operate, when in many cases, neither are very substantively true, those sorts of things were not just concerning about the U.S. state of higher education, but they're sort of a classic index of rising pro-authoritarian sentiment uh, writ large in many uh, advanced Western societies today.
1: And what's your sense of what should the role of the university be? This is a really big question sort of in society. And, and before that, can you say one thing about what you mean by democratic backsliding, which is, I guess, not a full frontal attack on democracy, but something else that <laughs> happens within democracy.
0: Absolutely. Um, more of just a broad description uh, than a particular academic definition, but I think democratic backsliding is something that's oftentimes well illustrated by examples and um, indicating, well, people start to have less civil liberties or particular um. Hyperpartisan political parties will erode rules and norms for their specific benefit, uh, corrupting institutions um, in the process. Corruption itself, sort of the integration of business and government, government leaders being beholden to non public entities for their political power. And so, among those sorts of examples, this is not me making a polemical argument, but I think it's it's fair, fairly well proven throughout history. I' try and consult uh, some scholars in international relations and political science and historians to support the idea that uh, attacks against universities are just a classic harbinger of uh, rising political leaders or movements who don't want spaces of open debate of cultural pluralism, of religious pluralism, uh, and truly free expression of civil liberties, which is why attacks against universities are, are very effective tools oftentimes to whip up popular outrage because they're such easy targets for saying, well, these elites are out of control and they need to be subject to stricter government power. And you often find that in alignment with attacks on the free press as well. Um, because those places are are among the more moderate, respectively speaking, um, in countries where at least some kind of democratic cultural pluralism has advanced. Um, Well, so that segues into just my personal thinking on the uh, mission of the university. And I think you're right, it's a big question. So as opposed to sort of a definitive answer or, or speaking for the idea of the university I think it is to maintain a place where new ideas can be explored from a variety of different perspectives in a space of cultural and intellectual pluralism. And that those new ideas can be explored, I think is very threatening to people who would like to say, these are the ideas we should follow, whether they're religious or political or historical. And in some sense, I tend to think about the university as very much then an ongoing project. Uh, The mission is still evolving in the US with respect to try and sort of indicate in the book, um, particularly recent history in the United States. We are in not what I would call a post-segregation moment, but an ongoing desegregation moment. Mm -hmm. So one of the foremost missions of the university right now, I think, is to recognize that many of these institutions, some of the problems they face, they really do face and real issues of free speech come from the fact that they were originally built as fairly traditional elitist exclusionary institutions. And now we have maybe only one or two generations of student bodies on college campuses that are something more alike, more like fully integrated or reasonably integrated in terms of true cultural pluralism and intellectual diversity.
1: I picked that up in your book. You said there is um, there's a real challenge that this is maybe two generations after the let's say officially declared or let's say legalized desegregation. It was kind of court ordered really and not voluntary in many cases. And there's still been resisted in this ways to circumvent it. And a couple of the issues that catch public attention are that Unlike your description of the university as kind of generating new ideas and therefore contributing to a better functioning society there's this idea that universities actually have now come up upon this. Um, idea of equity diversity and inclusion and it's a new orthodoxy and that is kind of the, one of the governing principles of your book, how you say under this name of orthodoxy. Um, a lot of people are attacking the university and saying the universities are not doing what they should be doing is to produce new ideas but instead they're imposing a particular mindset and that mindset clashes with what they define as democracy as free speech and a kind of first amendment absolutism and it clashes what they call sort of viewpoint diversity can you say a little bit about that how did people come up with this completely opposite understanding of the university is what the university presumably can be and can be I mean from Plato to Hannah Arendt or something you have people trying to figure out the university has this let's what you said it's it stands in relation to public society to the government to the state in a kind of ambiguous tension it is not supposed to actually just support all the policies of everything, although in many cases, as in your case at Pennsylvania State, it's funded by the government. Mm -hmm. So how do they come up with this idea and that the universities actually lost, not just lost track, but is now promoting what they call a kind of agenda or ideology that goes totally counter to what democracy should be. They're not just saying it's a little bit undemocratic here and there, they're saying it really goes against everything we are.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think that in many respects, that kind of narrative you're describing, the idea now that universities are hostile to viewpoint diversity and that diversity, equity, and initiative, uh, inclusion initiatives have gone too far and that they are now discriminatory. Um, that sort of narrative, I think, is a sort of distorted reaction to the turbulence that higher education really is undergoing right now. And I, I lean into, again, that notion of historical, historical recency. These are institutions in times of great transition right now and in sociopolitical turbulence where the idea of publicly funded education or higher education is, has been under assault for several years. So I think that's a that's a reactionary response uh, for the reasons I'll state. And I, I think you said it well in your own book early on that a lot of this really is about power. I think everybody from all perspectives recognizes the power of these educational institutions or that their platforms for power and prestige and credibility entrance and access into wider society. Um, the degree granting institutions that we have in the US are enormously important because of how many kinds of credentials people need uh, in order to work in various workplaces or succeed in civic life as a result of different forms of university education. So they're absolutely crucial gateways. That idea, that claim is an echo back to the whole controversy over the civil rights era and the controversy over uh, acts, equal access to institutions and so forth. So the idea of viewpoint diversity, as you, as you indicate, this is a, a leading terminology or sort of what I describe as the key term that is uh, on the top of the pyramid, if you will, for a lot of this discourse now reactionary and, and what I find deeply cynical campus misinformation. Um, the idea seems to be that, well, now we have reached a stage where we have enough diversity and inclusion in college campuses. And so now we need viewpoint diversity. And the definition, me just describing, not criticizing, the definition of viewpoint diversity there is that we need to have relatively ideologically balanced equal time among what I do describe as stereotypically partisan identities, conservative, liberal, libertarian, progressive, whatever it might be. So my objection to that idea is that it's actually not an expansion of intellect, a platform for expanding intellectual diversity, it's a contraction. It's to say that all these different measures, socioeconomic, um, quote unquote racial categories and so forth, uh, based on merit, of course, across the board, but that those categories don't matter anymore, should matter less, that somehow we've gotten to the state of good post segregation. And so that uh, now we should just have that ideological balance and that that should dictate admissions. That's a contraction on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's an abstraction because if you will just cast your eyes up and down all the different curricula that even a medium-sized university offers, you can search these online, anybody can, the vast majority of that doesn't concern partisan political perspectives at all. So if you teach the biology of fruit flies, I don't know what a liberal or conservative perspective would be on that. If you teach ancient Chinese archaeology, I don't think you can interpret the facts of the findings in the soil from a progressive or a liberal or a conservative libertarian standpoint, whatever it might be. So the The where this idea comes from then I try to say I think we should just be honest. This is a framework that has been applied to political journalism for a few decades now. That was a response to the increasing democratization and moderation and inclusion of US society writ large. And the idea was that in telecommunications and in national media, what we need to have is not sort of total information and public information about how different institutions function, but we need to pay most attention to, here's this liberal talking point, here's this conservative talking point. And applying that kind of model onto university education is, uh, again, both a contraction and an abstraction in a way that takes us further, I think, from actual rigorous multi-perspectival analysis of information, ideas, and knowledge.
1: How do you actually how do you respond to people who say well yeah brad this is all good but no really people should have two perspectives on everything so we should add and i'll make this not totally hypothetical example so the fruit flies in biology they should also take a class on creationism because that's one of the debates and i think you have a chapter on pseudoscience and on science which is interesting because in my view and experience the natural scientists have been slower in realizing this is an attack on them as well in the university. So when I wrote my book years ago, it seems years ago, people were like, well, that takes place in your types of departments in literature and history, maybe social studies, media, arts, those controversies, but we really don't pay attention to those controversies. I think after COVID and something has shifted, well, what do you say to people who say, well, no, actually the university should always uh, also offer students the other perspective and then they can choose. Mm-hmm. Isn't that kind of reasonable or you're saying it's a kind of reduction or limitation of actually what happens in the university if you prescribe that?
0: Mm, great question. Well, on the one hand, my response in this specific case about the, um, the philosophy of viewpoint diversity applied to higher education would be let's look at the results in US political journalism of the mentality that there are always two balanced sides to every um, story. And I think a lot of researchers across the board of US journalism would say, this is sort of almost a cliche in these circles now, as far as I can tell, that that mentality has been disastrous for public information Um, civic uses of the news, Uh, what we have is a whole industry that is manufacturing debates and controversy for the sake of multimedia spectacle. Mm. And the idea that there are two sides to every perspective is essential to that. And it's made a lot of political reporting not into um, fact-based journalism in pursuit of the truth, where the, the truth is the guiding thread in the interest of public welfare, but it's for the sake of the spectacle itself. And I think it's just very important for people to understand that manufactured aspect that when you watch the two sides to every perspective on cable news, television, or whatever it might be, political talk radio, those people are being paid to have a caustic argument. And that model then has been disastrous for political journalism. So my response would be to point out its artificiality Um, It's search for spectacle rather than truth and information and constructive argument. And that, um, again, that applied to higher education, I think is just not a good formula. Um, The other thing you say about the sciences and so forth and and two sides is I think that's that's something to lean into in the most constructive way. The idea that different disciplines are um, jockeying for influence, no doubt all the time within universities and for public attention. And I think we're in a fascinating sort of age with respect to data science, big data, DNA research and whatnot. And so I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but in, in some ways that sort of emergent science, of course, is going to revisit questions about, well, in part race and sex and gender and whatnot. And so we're, we're, we're figuring it out as we go along as as communities of knowledge uh, producers and teachers and learners. Um, But with respect then to sort of these things should be taught on university campuses, I'm always struck by the idea that creationism is taught in many university campuses. Uh, Race science is taught and there's two ways. One is that we do have private institutions that teach those things as academic knowledge. In the United States, we have what some would call almost a too diverse, too decentralized system of education. It's really many systems. It's almost 5,000 different post-secondary institutions. So there there are universities where you can go. It's a choice-based system. If you wanna learn creationism, you can do that. Um, But on the other hand, in a lot of other universities, uh, creationism, race science are taught but I think the issue for a lot of people who invoke the label of viewpoint diversity is message control. How are they taught? They're taught that that's bad science, that creationism on a fact and evidence based basis is, is wrong. They're taught that uh, the overwhelming majority of the scientific community, professional scientific community has rejected the idea that there's some sort of fundamental racial difference between white people and people of color. Um, and so they're taught, but I think the issue with viewpoint diversity is message control. In many ways, that idea of viewpoint diversity is leveraged to say, "Well, I want you to kind of, I want to have a mandated minimum where we will at least consider ideas that have been totally, routinely, in an evidence-based way disproven, and give those an extra leg up." To me, I don't know how you square that with a mentality of true intellectual diversity. And openness to actually new ideas.
1: It's interesting. I've, I've always been struck how open people are to this argument that, well, you got to revisit everything and there's another side to it. And it's just, it's just simply not true. Certain things we just actually, and I did a couple of podcasts on the idea of paradigm shift, which is Thomas Kuhn's notion that some paradigms are, they're not retired by the kind of the force of law or will or something, they just fade out because the the, consensus builds around evidence-based research, that this is no longer the way to explain part of the world. And the paradigm is not overthrown by some cabal of new scientists. It's too personalized in that understanding, but it just happens that this, and then people, for historical reasons, maybe go and look at that, but they don't really revisit everything. That seems to be more clear in the sciences. I mean, I, with friends of mine who teach the sciences say you cannot exactly go in and dispute the law of gravity and he said no it's just not we don't do that it's just not but in other cases in the humanities and these other social sciences political science people say well we should really entertain the notion and and then you come to absurd examples absurd from my perspective that i thought well we don't really actually ask whether some people are fully human that was my example in a in the book i wrote in an op-ed and a lot of people got incredibly angry and said no 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 it's really worth investigating this and i thought first of all i don't think it's worth investigating and secondly touches on this other point which you bring up in your book as well and that actually interferes with who is able to participate fully in the university and this goes back to your larger point of what is the university today versus and the university has always been an institution of exclusion as much as inclusion, Right, so a gatekeeping function. You have to be credentialed, verified. I mean, if you talk to parents of teenagers today, all they obsess about is how do you get my kid into a university? Sure. It's not what keeps them, like what keeps them out is the most powerful mechanism. Once you're in there, how do you make them succeed? That's the second step. But this, this idea that every viewpoint must be examined over and over isn't that part of why they're saying, well, that's what the university is about, and you should never shut down a student who says, well, I want to really understand whether uh, people from this or that category are capable of doing this or that activity. Shouldn't you engage with that, really, and then say, well, let's really look at this?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, yes, I have a cluster of thoughts close together there, and with respect to this question about what is the mission of the university that I keep considering you know to put an even finer point on that idea of of an open space for the consideration of truly new ideas for the reason you cite the mission the university is, is kind of a perpetually evolving thing the reason being as you mentioned that these retrograde disproven dehumanizing ideas they come back uh repeatedly if there's one thing that modern Western history teaches us is is we're going to experience cycles where people will, will reach back and try and say the most dehumanizing things in updated seemingly intellectually polite or scientific terms or literary, with literary sophistication or whatever it might be. And so the university is kind of a machinery to on a generation by generation basis guard against the spread of what I would describe as propaganda about other human beings in that regard um and that that is that is a challenge even within the university itself precisely because um those ideas will circulate precisely because the university relative to society at large can be a much more open space for for that consideration and exploration um but yes and, and that Reminds me then what what I think is is a danger of a lot of the contemporary vitriol against universities and what I call campus misinformation, is that it seems so profoundly ahistorical in many versions. That I tell the story, for example, in the University of Mississippi of uh, James Meredith in the mid nineteen sixties. James Meredith was a nine-year, I believe, Air Force veteran, and he went to um, an all-Black college in Mississippi for his credentials and whatnot. He was fully qualified, was admitted to the University of Mississippi as its first Black admittant, and literally tens of thousands of people rioted and took over campus, so much so that John F. President Kennedy had to send in Uh, armed troops. And there's research, there's a great book on this subject that calls it sort of the forgotten political insurrection in U.S. history. And that was not isolated, um, that there were just waves and waves of communities across the United States that as much as possible used intimidation and sometimes rioting to prevent even one qualified Black student from entering a school district or a university. And James Meredith, by the way, as I say in the book, is still alive. So we are within literally one living generation of those sorts of times. And I think there's a real danger then of um, from, from that period to the present of saying that, well, there's a problem with free speech because we're not considering the way in which, for example, black people might be scientifically, genetically different from white people and maybe less naturally intelligent and so forth. So the shocking thing to me is the sort of ahistorical aspect about this, that um, society seems to have forgotten very quickly with respect to where we've been. And that also speaks to proportionality. I, I'm against kind of shouting down speakers. And I think counter-protests can sometimes be product, counterproductive uh, when they're crudely done and just give more oxygen to noxious ideas and so forth. Um, That being said, though, we're in a moment where uh, it's just important to remember proportionally, if you really want to talk about these narratives about mob violence on college campuses, let's look to the reception that James Meredith and other uh, black students got when they bravely risked their lives just to sit in a classroom Um, and think about that as as a resource to judge how hyperbolic or not, how constructive or not are these claims being made about universities and free speech right now.
1: That's a so there's two parts to it. You say there has been a incredibly powerful transition of intolerance uh, in universities that's very recent and forgotten. And instead, there's a kind of picture right now that today students are totally intolerant in the name of usually it's racial diversity. It's actually quite interesting. It used to be in other countries, as you point out in your book, in um, Poland and Hungary and Brazil, gender studies is always a kind of target of these. In American universities as well, um, you know, my colleague Jonathan Haidt is on record on a video, says gender studies should be abolished because he says gender is so important everywhere. <laughs> kind of argument says let's abolish a field of study because he says we should look at gender everywhere, which is kind of how do you make sense of that? He And then also for a professor to say you want to abolish a department in your own university seems strange but what you're saying there's a kind of deliberate forgetting of this history and instead a deliberate overemphasis on what is happening in the last few years and this kind of inflation of these incidents right and mm-hmm. how do you, and part of your book is sort of trying to say and you said this a couple of times now evidence-based reasoning how do you have some guidelines for how to distinguish between the kind of exaggeration of these incidents and actually pointing out, you're saying there are some real threats to university, in addition to sort of the changing demographic that institutions haven't adapted to. You said finances are a huge problem, political interference is a huge problem, as we see in legislatures all across the country, where people are interfering in universities, actually, and using the tools of censorship, That at the same time, they decry saying universities are full of censorious snowflake students. Mm-hmm. So how do you get around this to sort of, every time there's a kind of controversy or someone saying to you, saying, oh, universities are so intolerant, to not just say, well, you're wrong, you don't know you're not in a university, to say this is serving a larger purpose. It's it's satisfying something in people to say, oh yeah, yeah I believe that. I think universities are totally intolerant places today.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a little bit, um, how do you respond to that and, and talk about evidence, uh, evidentiary resources and so forth in a constructive way, that's a little bit of the undercurrent of, of the whole book. Um, so that I try to not just be critical, but uh, proactive in saying, yes, we need to have these debates, let's lean into them. And I think two things come to mind in particular about sort of the the language of campus misinformation as I examine in, in this book. One is uh, who, who are the voices or who is the voice behind a lot of that misinformation? I actually find that these narratives, which have gained a lot of popularity uh, and adherence uh, throughout the country and media with pundits and so forth, they come from very specific sort of voices. That is, for example, that students don't get represented a lot in these forms of discourse. They often get talked about as objects, but they're not really subjects of discourse. Um, Administrators, too. Administrators seems like it's now become very much a nasty word, uh, almost akin to sort of a a party boss or an ideological overseer. Um, Administrators includes people in offices where they're literally meeting and interviewing with students who have been assaulted on campus, um, who are going through traumatic health concerns. Administrators also concerns people working you know, it's not as if these issues, these concerns with free speech and listening to everyone and balancing interests were invented in uh, a newspaper op-ed. There's a lot of administrators who are doing just that in conjunction with faculty and students and with good faith efforts and uh, effectiveness as they can find it on a day-to-day basis. So evidence for me is, is the decades worth of experience that those people who work in universities in many capacities have evidence to me is what students actually think and what they're actually doing on campus day to day. And I think our our discourse about uh, higher education would be improved, at least to some degree, by basing it not just on kind of punditry style messages or public relations messages or sort of manufactured narratives by people who want to gain large online followings, by raising these alleged warnings, but from actual people themselves in many different capacities, that's the kind of evidence for me that should be a valuable part of the debate. The other thing I would say, I, I lean into that idea of an evidence-based, more constructive discourse, because uh, what counts as evidence in the examples of cam- campus misinformation that I analyze, people play very fast and loose with it. And if you look at the kernels of actual information there, and you focus on that and not the elaboration into these sort of fantastical narratives, tells a very different story. And so one example I take on is the idea that uh, is often cited is that uh, again, undergraduate students these days are hostile to different viewpoints and that they don't wanna protect free speech. And that's why they themselves are a threat to the future of democratic society oftentimes the evidence for this is maybe just one or two opinion polls or experimental pieces of survey research. And oftentimes the headlines about how college students now don't respect free speech often hinges not just on one opinion poll, but one question in those opinion polls. And I know you've had Jeffrey Sachs on before and his research into the data analysis is fantastic. Actually, If you look across the board at the survey research and compare college students' responses to various questions about, would you welcome this speaker? Would you object to this perspective or not? Um, Younger college-aged people across generations based on the full wealth of data tend to be much more respectful of First Amendment rights uh, or tolerant of them than other generations in US society. And US society as a whole actually polls better uh, with respect to protections for First Amendment rights or tolerance for different viewpoints than um, some other societies, some other nations. So in a sense, it's, it's about bringing in the full scope. Let's bring in historians. Let's bring in people in literature and the arts and so forth. Let's bring in administrators and students and not have the discourse represented only by kind of that op-ed style of writing and message circulation. Sometimes we need fantastic op-ed writers. Sometimes it can be extremely reductive. It's it's two things at once. So let's bring in a lot. And also let's take, let's develop sort of an awareness as a public to scrutinize these messages because um, the evidence is there. It's just being misused in some wild ways. And so being able to sort of recognize The way in which information gets used for information should be, I think, an important civic thing, uh, because for the reason I said earlier, oftentimes these attacks on universities are harbingers of trying to curb civil liberties in other ways. So I think this should matter to everybody.
1: I I want to touch on one point you just said um, that what I always found is, well, not always, but I found a lot of times journalists who've written about this are not deeply aware of what happens in universities and I can't blame them they don't teach that they don't, they don't spend a lot of right. time in a story, they interviewed two people maybe they as you said not very frequently speak with students and in some ways tend to dismiss students experience and I think what's also absent because it's very hard to capture is what happens in the classroom and I think a lot of it is also about good or bad teaching and as a teacher there are moments when something is said in class and you can sense that this is actually silencing some people in a non-productive way. So how do you keep those people in conversation while someone said something that some people just feel, I don't wanna respond to this, or I don't wanna be the spokesperson for this experience, et cetera. As a teacher, it's complicated and you can work with that. It doesn't mean you can say, let's keep on talking about the subject, or can you say something about that this? But I always thought journalists have, They have another kind of um, professional problem. They're defending the First Amendment because the First Amendment is also used to protect the press. And I think sometimes, I think I talked to Stanley Fish and Robert Post, who is a constitutional scholar at Yale and was the Dean of the Yale Law School. He said, and you quote him in the book, he said, the First Amendment is not quite the right lens to look at speech controversies in universities. It applies only to a very limited extent because academic freedom is something different teaching is something different, scholarly pursuit of knowledge is something different. And Stanley Fish said to me, look Willie, journalists are defending their own terrain here and they're using the university and they're terrified for good reason that their first amendment protection will be revoked, but they confuse this. Uh, He said a few other things about journalists (laughs) the kind of resentment against the university. But I actually thought that was helpful that they actually think thinking they're defending the first amendment per se, when they are thinking the university has a problem. And you talk about this, you talk about this in a chapter called First Amendment Heartball," and you sort of say the First Amendment is used to answer a question before it's even been posed, rather than to actually analyze the situation. Can you say a bit more about what that is? And it's very tricky, and I've had so many constitutional scholars and who've been so gracious to talk to me because I'm not a legal scholar, and I have had, you know, the deans of Berkeley, or Erwin Marinsky, or, you know, Mm-hmm. Or Eugene, Wallach. Eugene Wallach actually was a conservative in a certain way said to me I said what would change if universities started prohibiting certain kinds of speech he said nothing I Said, what do you mean he said well the world would still go on and the United States would still be a free country and the first amendment wouldn't be abolished and I said well he said yes he said things change this mm-hmm. is an interpretation of a law mm-hmm. it's not the reality, the only permissible reality is that it just we adapt to things. I thought that was really useful because the First Amendment is often used as we either have it or we don't. And if we have it, we live in a free democracy. And if we don't, it's the end of civilization. It's a kind of ab- this absolutism. So can you unpack that a bit, how that comes in? And as I said, I'm not a legal scholar, so I know the First Amendment as much as most other people. And, you know, so I don't mm-hmm. say here. Yeah, I've tried to learn as much as I can over the last couple of years, so and thankfully everybody has tolerated my questions so far.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, well, yeah, a really important and complex question, and your your comments are, on teaching uh, are also, I think, uh, apropos here. So, with respect to journalists and how teaching gets covered in the First Amendment, one one thing I I do want to work in is the idea that. There's some fantastic investigative reporting on higher education, uh, and many journalists just create a wonderful public contribution through that mechanism. And I think what you're describing comes into play in terms of journalists or opinion writers, more specifically, who think of themselves as kind of authoritative public commentators. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's It's a wonderful way if you're successful in that, and they're oftentimes incredibly learned. But I think we're in an age where um, if you're on a, in a relatively traditional platform, like you have a weekly op-ed and a national newspaper, or you have a very strong ideological bent in this particular age with um, more democratized kinds of media and so forth, uh, you, you can do um, Twitter feeds, you can do websites, you can do podcasts and so forth it's very difficult in this climate to sort of control messages and to dictate thought and commentary. And I think that's the issue, that's the resistance point potentially, whether it's acknowledged or not, with some types of journalists and the university is that they're used to saying things in very declarative ways, particularly boiled down to, well, there's this dominant political stereotype in that one. But when you get that into the university teaching and research space, we of course like to take things apart and take them apart from a variety of different angles and add nuance and maybe challenge those sorts of broad declarations. So I think there's some friction there where these are sort of institutions that have been traditionally about giving prestige to those sorts of professions where you're the authoritative public commentator um, on behalf of society. And now we're in a much more democratic, increasingly democratic, decentralized space, interdisciplinary spaces, where some of those broad pronouncements might not get the sort of automatic adherence or prestige that they normally do. And so I think when you mistake that resistance or disagreement or readiness to critique and raise other ideas, when you interpret that as an infringement on your free speech, I, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think that's maybe where some of the cognitive dissonance comes from. Um, that and, and so a lot of these narratives that I'm concerned about, they play what I call First Amendment hardball with respect to college campuses uh, in, in the following sense, in that they sort of narrow what free speech allegedly means, or what liberties, true spectrum of liberties, the First Amendment actually protects. And so that the concern over free speech becomes literally, am I able to give a speech on a college campus without some sort of organized protest? Or am I able to give a speech where people aren't going to vociferously disagree with me? The First Amendment protects counter speech as much as original speech itself. Um, And so First Amendment hardball for me refers to an idea in political science known as constitutional hardball where political scientists have studied the ways in which political parties hyper-partisan groups will interpret laws and regulations and policies and norms to say well they no longer apply to everybody there's this sort of specialized understanding that applies to just sort of the circumstance where i can use that as a tool to consolidate my power and you get technical technically things that are allowed by a constitution then. Uh, where the constitution just becomes identified with one party or movement. And that idea I think of of free speech hardball is very much about the narratives we've seen on college campuses, just because you meet counter speech or nonviolent protest, even large scale vociferous organized protest, that is speech under the first amendment, every bit as much as the original act of speech itself. And so I think uh, it it would be great to have sort of a conversation then about what free speech truly means in these open spaces. It means speaking back, it means dissent, it means criticism and questioning of authority and rejecting automatic deference to traditional symbols of prestige as much as anything else.
1: it's interesting that free speech um, includes dissent, disagreement, very impolite, raucous interruptions. Jeremy Waldron, who I've interviewed as a First Amendment expert, constitutional lawyer, teachers at NYU, he said, heckling should absolutely be protected in the university. It's vitally important. He said, we have this kind of idea that this is wrong and disruptive. He said, what is wrong with somebody actually shouting something? He said, unless it drowns out the speaker or physically attacks them, he said, that type of counter speech ought to be protected. Hmm. And you analyze some of the more restrictive bills in universities where people are saying students should be punished for counter speech um, mm-hmm. right away. I was, this idea of the kind of First Amendment hardball is one way to sort of take the First Amendment on your side saying we're defending the right thing and you're defending the wrong thing. I right. to quote Stanley Fish once more because he's very generative of provocative quotes. Sure. Talk to him, which was quite funny in a certain way and also quite serious. And we talked about pronouns And he Mm -hmm. was a bit impatient. And I said, Stanley, you are a Milton scholar. You've known the evolution of the English language. There are words in Milton we wouldn't longer use. And he said, you're you're sort of right. I mean, he didn't say it that quickly. But I said, if speech were restricted, that I'm not allowed to use a pronoun, aren't I against this whole very, very extreme liberal idea of anything must be sayable? And it's people who attack the pronouns vociferously, who are saying, we are the biggest protectors of free speech, but you, you are not allowed to tell me what to call you. And I want to get to one thing you say several times in the book, you call it double speak. Um, you, in the chapter on orthodoxy, you say there's a kind of manufactured outrage about this orthodoxy on college campuses that goes hand in hand with people saying, there are all these fields of study that shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, they're saying universities are totally orthodox. And on the other hand, they're saying, universities shouldn't study all these bizarre esoteric strange things or gender studies or critical race theory so the and this doublespeak or and i would be curious what you what you make of that and what we're seeing today in state legislatures and people banning books and censoring books who are the most vociferous first amendment advocates presumably how do you how do you actually address or unpack that what you call doublespeak or contradiction or or you want to call it hypocrisy I think hypocrisy is problematic because it's such a morally loaded term Mm
0: -hmm. yes um uh, yes and so a couple of things in response and and one is I'm I'm mulling over that idea of should heckling be permitted or not and that
1: how much (laughs) right
0: (laughs) I don't know that I, I would ever recommend hard and fast rules on that but what I would say is that everybody And this is coming around to your question about orthodoxy and so forth and and different disciplines um, is that I would love to inject a vocabulary along with these broad mantras about free speech a, a vocabulary of ethics and responsibility here and this it seems to me is important in terms of the university system as well and a notion of responsibility or ethics could cut in several different ways so on the one hand those who are invoking these broad mantras about free speech and how the university setting doesn't accommodate new or different or orthodox ideas, oftentimes in the and I say try to point to these examples in the book, oftentimes the people saying that are intentionally trying to incite discord uh, and maybe even violence on college campuses and create some sort of spectacle or sensation that then gets taken up in political circles. And so those who are invoking the mantra of free speech, my question would be, if you care about the community of the university and if you really do think it's a, a place for the open exchange back and forth of ideas, what kinds of responsibility are you assuming or not when you try to use the mantra of free speech as a cudgel, as a wedge to intentionally foment conflict and hyperpartisan partisan spectacle? And then on the other side, yes, I think there's a sense of responsibility and ethics to how people use counter speech or protest, there are better or worse ways to do that. One thing about the nonviolent organizing of the civil rights movement and for many different movements since then is that training in those sorts of practices of counter speech and protest to figure out what the most effective ways to do that are is, is required. Uh, We need de-escalators, diffusers, re-channelers of that kind of back and forth invective, not people who are going to invoke counter speech just to meet an attempted conflict with another conflict, if you will. Um, So in those regards, then, the idea that the university itself uh, sort of overweening orthodoxy has overtaken it, and how do we kind of counter this doublespeak I, like, I think that more information, more public information about how institutions of higher education operate is the better. Again, from many different perspectives, if I had a wish list, I can't make this happen because I think campus misinformation is here to stay. It's just too much. It's become too much of almost a cottage industry of a lot of sociopolitical punditry and hyperpartisan invective. But if I had a wish list, we would replace that sort of manufactured outrage with a a broad public dedication to figuring out what does happen on college campuses on an ongoing basis. And one thing that does happen is every week uh, across almost 5,000 different institutions in the US, thousands of different speakers from across the ideological spectrum will be hosted without incident. And not just ideological speakers, but you have people speaking on all different topics, almost every evening in large university campuses like mine in multiple spaces, students organizing themselves, faculty organizing themselves to share ideas, artistic performances, efforts at community outreach. So that's kind of basic information. And if you understand that basic information, then it's very difficult to say, well, there's one ideological cabal dictating what gets said and what doesn't get said from a radical political perspective on any given college campus. And I'm willing to concede a lot of campuses and hierarchies uh, are very much wrapped up in what might feel like an orthodoxy or a group think at some times. Others are very good at managing those circumstances. But if you say that, you're not saying anything particularly special about universities as hierarchies, you're just describing hierarchy and, and fairly typical human interactions. So, so yes, more information, um, not so much manufactured outrage would be for the best, I think.
1: I think what your book does, what's useful, is also more self-awareness for universities. When something happens, and the, the amazing thing about universities for me is, and I was in the administration for a very long time, something new happens every day. You just never really know what your day is going to be filled with. It's very strange you think this really this this could happen this someone would do this (laughs) and what you're giving people I think in this book campus misinformation a bunch of frames in which to understand when something is happening and then it takes off on social media or in other legacy media or in publications or something and you can say this fits a pattern this actually will run this course it's now these terms are now being used there's here's orthodoxy, here's viewpoint diversity, here's this is an emergency, this is the end of civilization, if this happened, this is a safe space, this is calling, all these terms which have been used and you actually described, they have been kind of normalized over time for a specific purpose. But once people see that, I also think it gives students, instructors, uh, administrators, parents a way to say, okay, This is not the end of civilization right away. This is maybe a regrettable incident, or I have my issues with it, or it's not, didn't go the right way, or it's not going the right way. But at least we can see it's maybe not what some people in the press wanted to make, which is the end of civilization. And we must immediately have the harshest possible response unless we know unraveling all of it. So I think what your book does is sort of, it gives you a way to look at, even evolving a new situation that we can't anticipate yet and saying in a sort of somewhat of a larger perspective which I think is very helpful because I think these things are very upsetting to people because yes. they're on core beliefs and identities and I think they're very unsettling and I also think another part of it is that a lot of parents are rightfully concerned because they mm-hmm. they extended families or students are spending a fortune and incurring all this debt and then this is happening on their campus so they're even in want they don't want this to happen they don't want something problematic to happen sure. but it gives you a way to look at it and say this is this fits into a pattern don't trust the pattern too readily look at it it serves a purpose some people will come out looking like Heroes, some people will look like villains, but there's a kind of story that's already been put in place for this and maybe it's not the only lens to which to see this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and I think we're in a really important moment we're in a tremendous moment of transition with respect to what gets taught and how it gets taught on universities for the sort of ongoing what I call the ongoing desegregation era I mentioned earlier, but also the student body is changing, the economic models of how universities are run is changing, the the political status of universities with respect to state legislatures is changing. And so universities really are proof that democracy is very difficult, that in many respects, you will find many things on university campuses that from a subjective standpoint, you might not like. You might not like that this discipline now exists or there's this program and so forth but oftentimes the most common targets of that sort of um criticism things like gender studies african-american studies or these diversity equity and inclusion programs oftentimes are less powerful than many other parts of the institution or the least powerful always asking for resources and credibility And so democracy is a context where the things that are best about it for the system overall is a circumstance where you're being asked to tolerate things you don't like and coexist with them and treat them with at least basic respect and dignity and professionalism or the ethical responsibility of the community as a whole. So in university settings now, I find the kind of upside down world of a lot of the idea that, well, I'm I'm saying I'm for free speech when I'm also saying that these people shouldn't have a platform of their own to speak as they want, as students or teachers, or I'm for intellectual diversity when I'd like to shut down these six, eight, or 10 different departments. And so democracy and sort of in the enlightenment spirit of letting everybody have their say, it does require that kind of forbearance. Um, And that sense of professional ethics to sort of not try and control all the state of knowledge or all the discourse, but to let it be as it is in its full complexity.
1: And I think the other thing for democracy, what you just said, uh, you have a responsibility to make it work. And universities are a great testing ground. You're actually not, and in the American universities, mostly you're paying a lot of money, but you're not a passive consumer. It's actually a caricature and I think a terrible one. You're actually shaping where you are. And that is the same thing It's this fantasy that there's a lecturer at front and these students are sitting there passively absorbing knowledge. The fact that they have, they actually know what they are being taught and what they could be taught. And I think that's a great part of universities. They actually, in a way, if you lose use this model of democracy, citizens who are really shaping the way they're governed. It's a really great model. And in some ways for me, it's always been perplexing that when students have problems and object to things, well, that is... They're, they're good right and actually they're enacting their responsibility as participating in this they're not just the passive kind of recipients of knowledge they're actually shaping it it's a co-creation A project it's a joint project
0: absolutely and part of the specialness of universities or the, the different quality of it in relation to a lot of other parts of society is to some degree it's a space where i think in the best formula students should be encouraged then to try things. They're trying on how to be citizens, how to dissent, how to agree, and so forth. And faculty, I, I continue <laughs> to learn how to do that in the best ways as well. So it's it's a sort of set aside place in its own way. It is part of our uh, the ordinary society, but it's also a place where ideally it's, it's set aside so that people can try those things on. And sometimes they're going to fail as much as they succeed. And so I would just say to the wider public, look at the times and places where uh, students and faculty and administrators succeed, uh, and not just only sometimes on the margins where they don't get it quite right.
1: Well, Brad, I want to thank you, and I want to thank you for writing this book. So the book's called Campus Misinformation, The Real Threat to Free Speech in American Higher Education. And no, it's not just Governor DeSantis, and no, it's not Snowflake Students. The real threat is actually the way stories are normalized and become explanatory frameworks for a huge range of issues that are, some of them are real, some of them less real. So I think that book, Campus Misinformation, is really useful for anybody who wants to understand a bit more about these controversies and what purpose they serve in society, rather than this thing happened at their college who did what wrong that is so your book i think takes a step back um and you do a very impressive job of sort of being sort of saying yeah these they're 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 different sides to this you have an angle but it's not that you're defending one way of doing things in the university you're just saying what is the way out of getting trapped in one of those big um texts and i also want to recommend to our uh, listeners the other books commonplace witnessing rhetorical invention historical remembrance and public cultures the chapters i read about President Bush's speech at the island of Corée, and then the 9/11 oh. and the memories of sort of how politicians or the public makes use of specific historical moments or incidents to explain who we are today really I, th- I loved those analyses. really fantastic, I thought. So,
0: oh wow, that's very flattering. Thank you so much for yeah, stepping.:
1: Really amazing and I, I mean i I edited a book on 9 eleven a long time ago. Right. So it was a totally different approach, but to sort of say, what uses are these things for us today? We use we use mm-hmm. these events and put them into bigger stories. And, uh, mm-hmm. So I want to thank you again, Bradford. Vivian is a professor at the, in the Department of Communicative Arts and Sciences at Pennsylvania State University. The book's available from Oxford University Press called Campus Misinformation. Um, and this is another episode of the Think About It podcast. I really... Uh, really appreciate it. It also gave me a chance to revisit and rethink a lot of my guests who have done these incredible this incredible tasks of explaining to me a lot of nuanced things and you were able in your book to synthesize a lot of those topics.
0: Uh, really it's, a, it's a delight to win it. It's a wonderful series you've been doing. It's a terrific contribution. So thank you for your work.
1: Well, I always thought, you know, we can use the little phone in our pocket not to destroy but maybe to save democracy. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's the, 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 the modest ambition. (laughs) Got it. All right, Brian, thank you so much. And I hope to have you again on the show. Uh, I think about it at some point.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. Love it. Thank you.